Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host Al Smith and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We are in the holy season of Lent, and so I hope uh, many of you are uh, doing Lent well. I mean, we always like to say we're going to have our best Lent ever, and uh, every year we say that, I think, but um, still, I'm going to help you have your best Lent ever, and I think Archbishop Sheen can uh, be part of that success story uh, that we like to be able to look at everyone in the end of the season and say, I drew closer to Jesus Christ. And the way Fulton Sheen does it so beautifully is that he talks about the seven last words and how they can be applied to our everyday life. Uh, These seven last words being the words our Lord spoke from his cross on Calvary. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. These are the seven last words. And so Fulton Sheen takes those words and applies them to everyday life. And so today on the show, he will give three reflections. Uh, The one will be on the fourth word from the cross, and he'll ask a question, Did Christ think of atheist? And that's very profound. Did Christ think of atheist? And then we'll also share a second reflection uh, titled, Do I Need Love Beyond Love? And our third reflection today is titled, Should I Come Down from the Cross? Again, so there's going to be lots of great content for you to enjoy. So may I invite you, as I always do, to just sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as he speaks about the seven last words from the cross. Please enjoy. When our blessed Lord came to this earth, the gospel says of him, he came into his own, and his own received him not. He had to be born under the floor of the earth, in a cave. One asked to stoop to enter a cave. And the stoop is the stoop of humility. Now at the end of his life, he is rejected by the earth again. The trees turned against him, the trees that he made, for they gave him a cross. The bowels of the earth turned against him, for they produced a hammer and nails. The roses blushed a deeper red 
for from their branches came a crown of thorns. And the earth itself would not have his feet. So they raised him above it. As heaven rejected him, or rather as earth did, so did the heavens. There was darkness over the earth now for three hours. And the sun which he had made as a symbol of himself and his death and resurrection in daily life, now hid its light, almost as if ashamed to shed itself upon the crime of deicide. Is there anyone else who could reject him? Now that the earth and the heavens had? Yes, his heavenly father. Why should the heavenly father reject him? I quote reject. Because he would not leave us. Because he identified himself with sinners. And therefore the justice of the Heavenly Father saw him as one with the transgressors. And so our blessed Lord at this moment, when nature shares his mood, it's not often that nature shares our moods, we are sad and the sun is bright and clear. But nature now shares his words as he cries out, My God, my God, why? Why hast thou abandoned me? Notice he said God. He did not say his father. Why should the father have abandoned him as the earth rejected him? Well, because he's on this work of redemption. That's it very simply. Now many in my audience are fathers. Many a father has taken his young son to a dentist. And the boy had an infected tooth, and there was danger of his whole body becoming toxic. The boy dreaded going to that dentist. And when the dentist took the drill and began to give the boy pain, did the father ever seize the arm of the dentist and say, Do not do that. You're hurting my son. Or did he suffer it in order that the toxic condition might be revealed and relieved? Now, that's exactly what the Heavenly Father was doing. He was allowing the Son to suffer for us that we might be reconciled again to him. Now, each particular word is a expiation, a reparation for some kind of sin. 
This word of our blessed Lord is a reparation for atheists and fallen away. Does God know anything about atheism? Does he know what it is to be without the Father? In order that he might go through all the agonies of the human heart, in order that there might be nothing in him or our mortality, which he had not suffered and redeemed, he now willingly takes on, first of all, the pains and pangs of all forms of atheism. But notice he uses the word God. As he is atoning for atheists, there's still the undercurrent of God. Here there's the assumption that that is true even of the atheists. Scripture tells us of three kinds of atheists. First of all, what might be called the gastric atheists, whose God is their belly. That is to say, they who live only for bodily and carnal pleasures. They are atheists because their flesh extinguishes the spirit. And their lives are so foul that no light ever comes through the window of their soul. Then there is another type of atheist called the heart atheist. The psalmist says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That is to say he does not wish a God. Do you think that a bank robber when he's most intent in opening the safe ever looks for a policeman? And those who do not wish there was a God because they would have to change their lives are not looking for God. And the third type of atheists are those who are antichrist. They believe that they believe to hate. I can remember some years ago, I used to read Mass every Sunday in a church in London. And as I came out from the rectory, there was a girl standing before the communion rail addressing the congregation. And she said, I'm an atheist. I go out to Hyde Park every night and talk against God. There's too much evil in the world. That is why there is no God and so forth. And when I came up to her, I, I said to her, I was very happy to hear you addressing the congregation and telling them that you believe in God. Well, she said, you silly fool, I don't. Well, I said, I understood you to say just the contrary. I said, do you think we'd ever have such thing in our history in the man in America as prohibition unless there was something to prohibit? Do you think we'd ever have anti-cigarette laws unless there were cigarettes? How can you be an atheist unless there's something to atheate? She said, I hate you. Oh, I said, now you've given the answer. That's the answer. You hate me. Our blessed Lord now had to feel all of that loneliness. Nietzsche, 
one who wrote Antichrist and went mad playing the piano, shouting against Christ, wrote to his sister saying, Do not think that we atheists do not suffer. We are in great agony because you can endure any how if you know a why, and we do not know a why. So for all the atheists in the world, yes, for Karl Marx, for Brezhnev, Albania, Russia, for our sophomores who just heard of Darwin last week, the good Lord had to suffer for them and feel all of that rejection. For they are not just so much denying God as they are dismissing God. So our Lord now feels dismissed. Then he suffered for all the fallen aways. Those who have had the faith and lost it. Lost it probably through pride. Lost it more through the commandments, breaking the commandments, than through a denial of the creed. Their lights have gone out. And they have an entirely different suffering than the atheists. The fallen away, those who have had the faith and lost it, have a deep sense of disorder. There's glass in the stomach. Things are not right. They would like to have them right. But while they are lonely and distressed and frustrated, the Lord is suffering for them. And because of this word, we never give up hope for the atheists, the agnostics, the skeptics, and the fallen aways. The hound of heaven is ever on the march. Stirring the soul, causing a discontent. No matter how much we try to lock God out, we cannot. Would it not be a great marvel of divine providence if as a prolongation of this word from our love, our Lord, from the cross, that we would someday witness the conversion of Russia? Dostoevsky, the great novelist of the last century, said that Russia would one day become infected with devils. And then he asked for the Gospel of Luke. And he reads the story of the young man who had the devil, and our Lord cast the devil out of the young man and drove them into the swine. And swine plunged into the sea. And Dostoevsky said, and that's my Russia, full of devils. One day the devils will be driven out of Russia. And they will push back and back and back into the sea. There, there they will be drowned. And Russia will sit at the feet of Christ and learn his gospel. 
Not very long ago in, in Russia, there was a play called Christ in the Morning Coat. On the stage was a simulated altar with drunken priests and drunken nuns about, the altar filled with vodka bottles. And this actor, whose name was Rostovich, came out to ridicule the Beatitudes. And he began reading, Blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive merciful. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. And he read on and on the Gospel of Matthew. And at the end he said, I believe. At the end of the show, they never played it again. And one knows not what has actually happened to him. There are holes in the head of each and every one of us. And God's grace can get inside. Some are living in a kind of a hell, but heaven isn't far away. As hell is not very far away from heaven. Just imagine, for example, a perfect day in the springtime. Birds are singing. The lilt of the river nearby. Mountains are seen in the distance. All nature seems reflecting the divine power of the Creator. And in all of this peace, one man goes to a river, to that river where there are fish, contented because they're wet. And he takes one fish out of that water and holds it up. Where is that fish at that moment? That fish is in hell. See how close he is to heaven? Everywhere else is heaven. But he's in hell because he was made to be wet. And as that fish was made to be wet, we were meant to be with God. Then you'll be in heaven. God love you. Well, my dear friends, I know that you are in good hands with the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as your guide uh, through this Lenten series. And um, uh, wow, that first talk and about, um, you know, the atheist and does Christ care about them? And of course, he cares about everyone. He doesn't want one soul to be lost. He came to save us all. And so, uh, but that sin of pride, that pride that creeps in, uh, intellectual pride, um, again, there's financial pride, there's, uh, there's so many uh, <laughs> different types of pride, and yet our Lord's powerful cross uh, can overcome all those sins of pride. And so, about that word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Fulton Sheen just ties it so beautifully in to uh, help us overcome the sin of pride. And so I, I want you to uh, know that uh, Fulton Sheen is that trusted Lenten guide. Um, he's helped me a great deal. Uh, my father is a convert uh, to the faith because of Fulton Sheen. And so uh, he has hundreds of thousands of souls 
to his records. So um, he's doing something right. And obviously, uh, those who are listening with me uh, are nodding our head every week saying, uh-huh, that's true. Yes, yep, you're right. And uh, he does it week in and week out. And this is why he had 30 million viewers tune in each week to watch his television program, Life is Worth Living. And, you know, speaking of watching those programs, we, we've we been able to uh, put them all together into one website. And it's a, a website simply titled bishopsheentoday.com. And when you visit Bishop Sheen today, you will find all those videos cataloged season one, season two, season three, etc. of his shows. And uh, again, there's just literally hundreds of hours to watch uh, Fulton Sheen. And of course, it's priced right. It's all free. And so uh, I always thought if salvation is free, uh, Fulton Sheen should be free. And um, again, these free videos that are available for you to enjoy. So uh, bishopsheentoday.com. All right, uh, let's see. Let's try our second reflection here to keep us going. Uh, the title of this talk is where Archbishop Sheen talks about the fifth, the fifth word from the cross, which is I thirst. And he's going to tie it in and ask the question, do I need love beyond love? Our blessed Lord is the word of God, was the creator of the universe, from his fingertips tumble planets and worlds. All the rivers and fountains and springs of life came from the magic of his creative hand. Then when he came to this earth, he assisted one day at the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was a Jewish feast that lasted for about eight days. And on the final day, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and gather some water from the pool, bring it up to the temple, and pour it out in full view of all the people as a reminder of the blessings of God. And our blessed Lord broke into the liturgy and said above the trickling of all the waters, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. On another occasion, tired and weary at noon, he sat down at Jacob's well. A woman from the nearby village of Samaria came to draw water at noon, which was an unusual time because the other women would not let her come at that hour, at the morning or evening hour when they visited the well. And our Lord asked her for a drink and told her that if she continued to drink of these waters that she would thirst again. He told her to drink of the water that he would give and she would never thirst. This is one side of our blessed Lord's eternal life and earthly life. Now we come to the cross. It is only natural after hours of crucifixion, bloodletting, 
scourgings of the night before and forty different kinds of fevers, that the body should be almost in the kind of a hellish torment. So there welled up from him who created all the waters of the earth the shortest of all the seven words, I thirst. When he was nailed to the cross, the executioners offered him a drink, but it was an anodyne, and he refused to take anything that would dull pain. Now what they offer him is probably some of their sour vinegar wine. And one of the soldiers reached some hyssop on a javelin and reached it to his mouth. This cry of our blessed Lord had a double meaning. First of all, it was obviously physical thirst, because that was one of the most natural effects of the crucifixion. The other effect was spiritual. What did the physical thirst here represent and symbolize and atone for? I believe that it atoned for all kinds of excesses. We do not have statues to alien gods in our culture. Once the true God came to this earth, there was no more need of making images of God, for the true image of God walked the earth. No other planet saw his earth visiting feet but our own. But though we have no formal statues of gold and silver, we do have gods that we worship. And the three gods that are worshipped by our modern culture are Bacchus, Venus, and Mammon. First of all, Bacchus. Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of marijuana. God of heroin, the God of drugs. All those things from God's creation that wreck and destroy in some way that which makes man the image of God, reasonable creature. It is a very curious thing that in the, these days when we mouth freedom, we are so anxious to destroy that which makes us free. The second god that we worship is Venus. Venus, for all eroticism, lust, excesses of gluttony, and so forth. Where there is one organ isolated from the human body, and made the object of worship. And the third god that we worship is Mammon. 
Mammon is the most subtle of all because there's a kind of an infinity about it. One can never have enough. It is also a kind of economic immortality. See what I have. See how well prepared I am. My barns are filled. Each of these create a thirst. Not one of these gods ever satisfies. I thirst for marijuana, I want more. I thirst for alcohol, I want more. I thirst for money, I want more. If there was ever to be reparation in the heart of man for the excesses of the worship of these three gods, it had to be performed now on the cross. As our blessed Lord suffers a physical thirst to atone for those who drink and are never satisfied, who eat and are never filled, who lust and who never love. This was a very tortuous kind of moment for our Lord. It was almost a kind of hell. Because those who rely upon these gods and indulge in the fractions but never get the whole undergo a kind of a hell. The alcoholic for his drink, for example. The lustful person for the pleasure. They're never satisfied. This creates an interior hell. That is what hell is, a thirst. That is the way it is described in the scriptures. When, for example, the rich man was in hell, he spoke to Father Abraham and asked that just a drop of water be put on his tongue to relieve his thirst. Thirst is hell. It is interesting what has happened to hell in our modern world. First of all, we used to believe it as the good Lord taught it, that there is a heaven for those who do good, a hell for those who do evil, and then there is the earth which is the place of probation. We finally denied heaven hell and earth all for various reasons we said that it smacked of a universe that was not very scientific but when we denied hell it went somewhere else where did it go it went on the inside of human hearts And human hell, with all of its psychic madness, began to take over. It 
We had to be relieved from these burning flames. That conscience that had a thousand several tongues, and each tongue brings in a different tale, and every tale condemns me as a villain. I wonder, Macbeth asked about his wife, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the rooted tablets of the brain, and by some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart. So that's why we had to seek all kinds of psychic relief. The deadening of consciousness, because hell moved inside. And finally, we couldn't take that hell. So what have we done with it in the last 10 or 15 years? We've made it into nuclear bombs. And the movies become the interpreters. So that catastrophes, judgments, towering infernos, wrecks, disasters, apocalyptic events... All of these terrible endings seize upon the mind to make it forget that brood of nocturnal serpents. They will not be still. That was the hell that our blessed Lord endured in this thirst. hell for those who worship the three gods. He atoned for them, they will but invoke his mercy. And then, a spiritual thirst. And that is probably the real meaning of the word. Because we read in one of the Psalms, I thirst for the living God, when will I appear before him? So our Lord is now thirsting for return to his Father. The night before the Last Supper, he prayed to his Father and asked for the glory that was his before the foundations of the world were laid. Told his disciples he was going to prepare a place for them. Now he has this thirst to return again to his father. And applying that spiritual thirst of our Lord to ourselves, what is it that we have if we love the Lord? We have a thirst for holiness. We want to be saints. We want to be happy. be at peace on the inside, to be one with the Father. And what is sanctity? Sanctity is, is Christ living in me, so that his mind possesses my, my mind, and I'm governed by his truth. That's sanctity. So that he's in my will, 
and all things that are pleasing to him, that I do. He's in my body, so that my body becomes a tabernacle. And then sanctity is not only Christ in me, it's making Christ known to others. It's being lovable, making Christ lovable. When they see us, others see us, they see Christ. As Peter and John, when they were in the Sanhedrin after the resurrection of our blessed Lord, Caiaphas and those who had condemned our Lord said, well, they've evidently been with Jesus. That's what a saint is. You say of him, well, he's been with Christ. That's happiness. And we all want it. The tragedy of life is not what we suffer. The tragedy of life is what we miss. The great and tremendous joy at being at peace. And what our Lord willed then was that we be his, so that we are to do what some of the crusaders did at the time of the uh, Robert Bruce. He was taken ill and was unable to go on the crusades, and he asked his friend Lord Douglas, when he died, to, when Bruce died, to cut out his heart and take it with him to the Holy Land. And when Douglas went on the pilgrimage and on the war, with the Saracens in the Holy Land, he met the enemy outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he was losing the day, and he turned to his soldiers, and holding up the heart of Bruce, he said to his soldiers, he's where the heart of Bruce was wont to go, there go ye! And he threw the heart of Bruce into the enemy, and so anxious to capture it, they went in and won the day. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. We hadn't lost fire. Our fires have gone out. Fire has two qualities, light and heat. We have the light, but the enemy has the heat. No fire. No love. So take Christ. Love him so much, you go in to win the day. Well, my dear friends, I hope your heart has been stirred. And uh, I love those little battle cries that Fulton Sheen gives us. Uh, to uh, really, um, I like to say, get busy. I think my mom and dad used to come in um, and talk to us. Uh, I'm one of 12 children, so I come from a good-sized family. And mom and dad would say, you know, we need to get things done. And uh, they would put a fire in our belly to, uh, you know, ship up and uh, <laughs> shape up. And you know what I mean. It's uh, one of those things, get her done as a is a saying I, I hear all the time. But, it, you know, Fulton Sheen is saying to us, um, again, we have to have that fire, that desire to serve God, to pick up our cross and follow him. And so, uh, again, I, what, what can I say more than that is that we need to pick up our cross and follow the Lord. But um, I tell you, these seven last words that our Lord spoke from the cross on Calvary, uh, they are uh, what Fulton likes to refer to as the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, yes, there was the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Beatitudes, and we know that by heart, many of us. But this second sermon from the Mount, uh, from Mount Calvary, 
contains in it uh, so many truths. And uh, again, it is the words of a dying man. These are the words of our Lord when he was dying. And uh, usually, again, history will tell us that the words of a dying man are very profound and have great meaning. And so these words do. And again, Fulton Sheen is helping us to understand uh, the meaning of these words. And uh, again, people were asking me, and we were mentioning last week on the program about what books to read during Lent. And so uh, any of one of the books that Fulton Sheen wrote on the seven last words, uh, I highly recommend. Uh, we put them all together in one book. It's called The Seven Last Words of Christ Explained. And um, again, there's nine books that are put into one. It's a good size volume. Uh, we've made it in a large print edition and a smaller one. So you'll find it. You'll just, you know, Google search the seven last words of Christ explained by Fulton Sheen, and then you'll see it. And um, again, there's two versions. Um, but again, <laughs> it's all about what your vision is. You know, I, I like the big print. So uh, that uh, version is called The Seven Last Words Explained. And so uh, you'll see in the description. But uh, Amazon carries the book and they, it's a worldwide um, distribution center, of course. So you can be in Australia and buy it on Amazon Australia, be in the United Kingdom and buy it on Amazon.uk or be in, you know, North America and buy it on Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. So um, that Amazon gets around. But uh, again, lots of Fulton Sheen on Amazon to purchase. And many people have their free shipping packages. So uh, get to while you're at it. And um, again, anything that Fulton Sheen wrote on the seven last words uh, is very helpful for the soul. All right. We will now have our third reflection, uh, and it's titled, uh, The Sixth Word from the Cross, Should I Come Down from the Cross? And um, again, looking forward to this reflection. So uh, please enjoy. Life is full of unfinished symphonies. Marriages that were never lived out until death do them part. Educations that were never completed. Jobs that were never done. Vocations that were never fulfilled. Leaving unused chalices in sacristies. in veils of nuns and old boxes and garrets. Unsculptured works of art, like the statue and monument to Julius II, where the figures are just half emerging from marble, but were never completed. For all the unfinished lives of people, lives that can be finished, however, our blessed Lord now utters his sixth word on the cross. And it is about finishing and completing a work. He finishes his. And so his word was, it is accomplished. 
It is finished. In other words, the work the Father gave him to do has been done. Why is our work unfinished and his is? Why is so much of our work undone? It's because we hear a cry that was uttered against our blessed Lord at that particular moment. As the enemies came beneath the cross and with clenched fists shouted to him, Come down from that cross. Come down and we will believe. They would apparently believe anything. But just come down from that cross. That's why lives are unfinished. Young people who are afraid of their peers and afraid to be good when their peers are bad come down from the cross. Come down and we will believe. With our blessed Lord, on the contrary, it is finished. What is finished? The work of redemption. From the very beginning of the human race, there were signs and symbols and types of what was happening at this hour on Calvary. They are now finished. One of them, and I think one of the most beautiful of all, was the scarlet cord. That was finally finished. It was a long string. When Moses sent out his spies from Egypt, twelve of them, to go to the land of Jericho to see how strong the people were and how fruitful were the crops. They came to the walls of Jerusalem and they were let in by a prostitute by the name of Rahab. She said, I know that your God is the true God. I know of the marvels that he wrought in the Red Sea. And I know you are going to take this land. And I only ask that when the Lord and his people come, that you will spare me and my parents, and my family. And the spies said to her, when we cross the Jordan and come into Jericho, you let out from your window at the wall a scarlet cord. And we will see that cord, and everyone in your house will be saved. That scarlet cord was the symbol of the blood of Christ. and all of the paschal lambs that had been sacrificed, and all the other penitential rites of the Jews, where there was a shedding of blood, there were inches in that cord. And finally the cord reaches to Calvary. And at that moment, our Lord saw the completion of it. He had shed his blood for the redemption of the world. The cord had reached its end. The serpent. When the Israelites had disobeyed God, Moses was told by God 
to construct a serpent of brass and hang it up on the crotch of a tree. And everyone who would look at that serpent of brass and the crotch of the tree would be healed of the poisonous bite. For many of the Israelites had already died with the bite of that serpent. Now there's absolutely nothing in looking at a brass serpent that would cure us of a snake bite. This was just simply a matter of faith and a belief in the symbol and a belief in the word of God. He said it. So our blessed Lord, in talking to Nicodemus when he came on earth, said, as Moses lifted the serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. And as all who looked at that serpent were cured of the poisonous bite by belief in the word of God, so now one who looks like as if he were evil, as that brass serpent looked like a poisonous serpent, but was not. So our Lord looked like a sinner, but he was not. And all who looked upon him and look upon him would be healed. This was finished. And all his other works, types, were done. And that's what he meant by this word. But there is another word in scripture that's very seldom quoted. It's in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, a letter that he wrote from prison. St. Paul says, I fill up in my own flesh the sufferings that are wanting to the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. I fill up, I complete, I finish in my own flesh, body, the sufferings that are wanting to the passion of Christ. Was there anything wanting? Did he not redeem us completely? Did this not completely satisfy divine justice? How then could St. Paul say, I'm filling up a quota? A quota that's yet to be added to the sufferings of Christ. Because our blessed Lord in the Old Testament is sometimes presented as an individual, or sometimes as Israel, the church. He is personal. He is the corporation of the people of God. In the New Testament, he's our head, the head of the church. He has a corporation, which is the church. As he, the head, suffered for the church and brought it into being, so we who are members of the church which is the continuation of his life, have to help redeem the church. It's very much like creation. God created the world, but he put the world into our hands. We have to complete it with our technology, with our arts and with our sciences. So our blessed Lord redeems us. We have to begin applying that redemption. He's given us the word, we have to apply the acts. So the church needs salvation. The church needs redemption. 
And that is what St. Paul meant by saying that he finishes, he completes the work of redemption. Now, this is something we never think about. That is one of the reasons why we drop reparation in the church. We have reparation in the human body. When I had my open heart surgery, I was bleeding to death. I depended upon 80 people who gave me 80 pints of blood. The human body has only eight pints. Somebody had to supply 80 pints to keep me alive. They were filling up the quote of my life. And just as we have a kidney transplant, even a heart transplant, so we have the transplanting of merits, of prayers, suffrages, sacrifices, from one member of the church to the other, to cure those members of their anemic condition. We're living in a decade that needs reparation more than any other decade in the past 100 years. But we're failing it. I was talking to a young woman who was in an iron lung for 21 years. The only part of her body that she could move was her head. And she told me that she had a visit a week before from six seminarians. And they told her they were about to be ordained priests. And she said, well, I hope you're also going to be ordained a victim. Because our Lord was not only a priest, he was a victim. He offered himself for others. So you have to do that. And they said, no, the Lord wants us to have a good time. She said, you young men are imposing a tremendous additional penance on me to make you worthy of your priesthood. She was filling up in her own body the sufferings that were wanting to them. So those of us who have the faith have to begin restoring the idea of reparation. In talking to His Holiness Pope Paul, I said to him, You have been well named, Paul, for as Paul was stoned as he went from Derby to Lystra to the city of Antioch, so you've been stoned by your own. Yes, he said, every night when I go to bed, I open my mail at midnight, and in almost every letter is a thorn. And when I put my head on my pillow at night, I lay it really on a crown of thorns. And then he added, but I cannot tell you what an ineffable joy I have. For I am filling up, he said, in my own body the sufferings that are wanting to the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. This is the unfinished side of redemption. Ours, yours, mine. I saw the Son of God go by crowned with a crown of thorns. Was it not finished, Lord, said I, and all the anguish born? He turned on me his awful eyes. Hast thou not understood? Lo, every sin is a Calvary. 
than every soul a rood. Well, my dear friends, I want to thank you for joining me for another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And I must say, I have been enjoying uh, these Lenten reflections from Archbishop Sheen. And um, we will have many more to share with you over the next few weeks. And so I'd invite you to bring a friend and to uh, tell everyone about Bishop Sheen Presents. And um, we're heard all over the world on uh, Radio Maria USA, Radio Maria Canada, uh, in the United Kingdom, on Radio Maria Ireland, and uh, God willing, soon to be on Radio Maria England. And uh, we're, off, of course, on Radio Maria the Philippines and Radio Maria Australia. So uh, with the uh, Radio Maria Worldwide family, uh, there are many souls uh, tuning in and listening to the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Again, a reminder to just visit us at our website, bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find uh, hundreds of hours of free videos and audio recordings and a listing of all the books that Fulton Sheen wrote, so a lot there. My dear friends, until next time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.